0: Uh, there is a, I've been reading a lot, uh, recently about, uh, a class we're gonna do in our equipping class just about technology and different things. And I'm convinced the more I read it that we have a, a an epidemic in our world and it has a lot to do with technology and, uh, social media and all the things that you read and all the things that uh you come to as you're thinking about it is the way it changes our brains in a way that changes the way we interact and and the negative effects that now come and as I've been reading these different things uh, one of the things that kept coming up is is what it does to to young people and their forming brain and what's happening in their lives and they've started to point out all these different things that they're seeing that come from this depression and anxiety and struggles and all these things that happen and they've pinpointed some of the reasons that's the case. And one of them is, is every time you take a phone out and you open an app and different things that there's, uh, our, our brain is literally being rewired because you open certain apps and certain things and the way that they're created and the way they're aimed at you is they bring all sorts of, of kind of reward systems and you literally have a release of dopamine when you open them. And it's this the chemical that your body releases when pleasurable things are happening. And you open it and you get this thing. And so it's like it really becomes addictive. And so you have to check your phone 100 times every day and all these things. And there's all this stuff is kind of sent at you. And so that was one of the things they were saying. But then they were saying uh, in the adolescence, kids today with social media, one of the big things is it becomes this thing of constantly feeling like they're missing something. Everything is broadcast kind of on social media and what you're doing and what you're about and what it's like and all these great things. And so people have this this intense uh, feeling that they're always missing something because they're seeing what other people are doing. And I was thinking about that. I didn't have that in high school. I didn't know what anybody else was doing because I didn't have a way to know. And I'm so glad I didn't, but you can see how that would become an issue. But then I was reading that there's uh, one of the struggles is the constant comparison. Social media brings you face to face with other people and they're showing you kind of their best foot forward and what that looks like. And so then you're comparing yourself to that. But then add into that too that your your feed is filled with celebrities that are uh, wealthy beyond all that you can imagine and they have plastic surgery and all the things they're doing. And so then there's this comparison factor that comes in and then you add on top of all that, it all functions on an algorithm. that's really, really... Scary, to be honest. There's no other way to say it. It's kind of reading everything that you do and how long you look at something and when you pause and all those things and then it's feeding you stuff constantly. And I was thinking about all of that, trying not to be overwhelmed with the reality of that. And what I was thinking though about what it pertains to today is in so many ways it reinforces all the things that the world tells you over and over that you need to be someone. It's telling you all these lies about what it means to be a person and to be successful and to be accepted and to be wanted and all these things that are deep within us in all these different ways. And it's telling you that you need these things and you need to look like this and you need to have this and it's constant. And I was thinking about how that bleeds over so often to our relationship with God and how we relate to Him. What ends up happening a lot of times is we start to look to God Not for God, but what he can give us. The world's telling us that we need all these things and all this stuff and we're bombarded with these messages. And so then we start to talk to God in a way of, God, would you please give me these things? My life would be good if I had these things. And so our spiritual spin is, God, would you please give me these? I think this is three weeks in a row. I'm going to quote lyrics from a song. (laughs) But I remember listening to a song recently where the chorus says, and it's, it's sad when you think about it, God, please make me famous. And if you don't, please make it painless. And how many people function that way? And that becomes our relationship with God. God, I need you to do these things for me. And if you do these things for me, then everything will be okay. But here's the deal. I see that in the way technology is ramping that up today. But that's always been the heart condition. All the way back from the very beginning, we struggle with that idea of thinking our identity and our purpose is through things, stuff, uh, money, status, all those kind of things. And then our relationship with God becomes, would you give me those things? And what ends up happening is our relationship with the creator God of the universe, our relationship with Jesus becomes a means to an end other than him. Jesus, I need you to give me these things so I'll be happy. But what we're going to see in our text and what Jesus is clearly going to say to the crowds that are now coming to him, the crowds that are coming to him to want to use him in different ways as a means to an end, Jesus is going to tell us in no unmistakable terms, he is not the means to the ends. He is the end. He is the thing that we're looking for. He's not here to be used to give you something else. He is the thing that you need. And he's going to say that so clearly as these crowds are pushing in around him. And so as we think about this idea today, this is the way I want us to think about it. As we look at this kind of familiar passage about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and kind of what he says to him right after. But the way I want us to look at it is first is this is a mistake that all of us make. Every single one of us falls into this trap. We all make this mistake. Secondly, why is it so easy to do again and again? Because we do do it. We all do it. We all make this mistake, and then we all fall into it again and again. But then lastly, what does Jesus say is the answer here? So the mistake we make, the reasons we do it over and over, what does Jesus say here is the answer. And so the mistake we all make, just real quickly, background on where we are. If you've been with us, you know for the year we've been going through the Gospels, but we've been doing so in chronological order. So we're taking Jesus' ministry roughly in the three years that it happens and we are now in year two, right towards the end of year two, about to kind of turn the page into year three. And what I've been saying is year two, we kind of give the heading over to the year of popularity. Jesus gets really, really popular. And he's preaching and teaching and he's doing miracles and everywhere he goes, people are starting to get really excited that Jesus might be the Messiah. And they're talking this way and the crowds are coming. And we could say right now at his ministry, it's kind of reached a fevered pitch. Everywhere he goes, he is surrounded by people. Ecstatic that he is this idea that he might be the Messiah. And so every miracle he does, everything that they see happening, it's almost like an antenna goes up and they go, wow, look at what he could do for us. Look at what this could mean. And so everywhere he goes, he's mobbed by people. And so what ends up happening, and this is the mistake they're making in Jesus' day, and it's the same mistake that we make. We end up putting our felt needs over our deepest need. Our felt needs over our deepest need. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Our felt needs are kind of the things that we feel in our life that are most immediate. Where you feel things most acutely. But what happens is we often focus on that felt need and right where it is, and we never go to the heart condition that's underneath it. So, for example, in Jesus' day, they're feeling fear and anxiety and apprehension, and they're struggling with that they are a occupied people by a foreign government. I've been saying this over and over, right? The Jewish people are not free at this time. They've been taken over by the Romans The Romans have come in and under the heavy hand of oppression are taking control. And they're ruling and reigning over the people at the time. And their felt need is we need a new government. Their felt need is, man, it would be great if the Messiah would come and overthrow this government. Lower our taxes. We wouldn't have this heavy oppression. We wouldn't have this military presence everywhere we go. All the things that they're feeling. And so the felt need that comes to the surface is the things that you see right in front of you. And so we do the same thing at different times. You see it in our culture today. The world's a mess and we feel it and things feel out of control. So what do we do? We pray that God would fix the government. We pray that God would put the right person in power and they would have the right laws and then things would be better. And we try to control the things that we're feeling that feel out of control. And so we fixate on the felt need rather than the deepest need. Uh, one of the things I'd say right now, I think you probably feel this. Every one of us could probably go around and talk about it. The last couple of years, there's been great inflation all of a sudden. And you feel it when you go to the grocery store. Or I do. I go, and what used to cost $100 is now $190. And you go, how did that happen? I just bought cereal and milk, and it's $150. And you go, how is that possible? And you start to feel it. You feel that, and you start to feel anxious about it. And you go, whoa, what I used to buy costs not near this much. And then all of a sudden, you feel that in financial terms. And you start to worry like oh do i have enough money and do i make enough money and how would i do that and all those things start to kind of pile on you and there's an anxiousness that comes from that and we feel it in that way but there's something deeper going on there's a spiritual element to that there's a heart part to that when i'm feeling out of control when i'm feeling anxious when i'm feeling overwhelmed Part of that is me not completely trusting in who God is and what he's told me about who he is. The the connections of that are much deeper than just will I have enough to pay for my groceries. There's something more going on and there's a deeper connection. There's a spiritual connection there as well. And so what God tells us from the very beginning is he's made us to be these spiritual beings, to know and to love him and to have this relationship with him. That it's not just the felt need. That there's much deeper things going on underneath that. And the root of that, the reason we struggle with it is our sin. And the sin in the world. Right? Sin, I say this all the time, but sin is ignoring God and the world he created. We're forgetting who God is. And when we forget who God is, then we put our focus on the things that I feel right here in front of me. And I make all my energy and all of it pointing right towards that. But Jesus is reminding us over and over that it's not just the felt need, that there's something much more going on. And so I want you to just think about that. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about your felt needs. It doesn't mean that you don't pray about those things. Jesus teaches us to pray about it, right? Think about the Lord's prayer. He starts with praying about the deeper spiritual needs in our relationship with him. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But then he does say, give us this day our daily bread. It's not that God doesn't care about the felt needs, but there's a lot more going on than that. And the mistake we make is we focus on just the felt needs and then we just stay right there. And so that happens often. But you'll see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is constantly correcting this. He's saying this over and over. He's coming back to it. He tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be taken care of. Even the way he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Start with God's name and his kingdom and these things, and I will take care of your felt needs. I will take care of those things that are right in front of you day to day. But so often what we do is we get overwhelmed by the felt need that we never get down to the connection of the heart. And we leave that unattended. And it's pretty easy, I think, to think about why. But I want you to just think about why that's the case. If that's the mistake we all make, we focus on the felt needs rather than the deeper needs. We start to use God to answer the felt needs, but not ever get to the heart. Why is that the case? Why do we do that over and over? Why is it so easy for us to do that again and again? And the first thing I'd say to you is because we're more than just spiritual beings. We're physical. We live in this world and all the things that go with it. And it's right in front of us every day. And we feel those. You even see it in our text here, right? Jesus goes, right? Remember, crowds are everywhere. He goes and sits down. The people have found him. And they come and they surround him and they start to sit down. And it says in verse five of chapter six, lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards them, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? He sees all the people and they're there and they're coming and they're listening to him as he's teaching and preaching. And there's tons of people. It says 5,000 men. Most commentators, most scholars say that if it says 5,000 men, it's just counting the men. And so when you take into account the women, wives, husband and wives, children, there's probably about 15,000 people. And so he lifts his eyes up and he sees a 15 arena full of people. And he says to Philip, how are we going to feed all of them? They need to eat, right? Jesus is saying what he's saying there is obvious. The felt need that we all have. If all these people are here and they're going to be here all day, they're going to need something to eat. How are we going to do that? And so we feel those things because they're right in front of us every day, right? You wake up every day and your stomach growls and you're hungry and you're like, I need to eat. There's nothing wrong with those felt needs and you can understand why they're pressing in on you because every single day you feel them. Every day there's things right in front of you. And you can understand why you focus on them if you stop and think about it. It's because the things that feel most pressing are the things right in front of you. It skews your perspective. I think of it this way. Like uh, if I look outside, I see those big trees out the window. And if I hold my thumb up right here and I put it in front of my eye, guess what? My thumb looks bigger than about four of those trees. Why is that? You know, it's because of the perspective. It's right here in front of my eye. Now we know intellectually that that tree is way bigger than my thumb. In can walk out there and put your hand on it. Go, this is way bigger. But when it's right here in front of me, it feels like this is bigger. And so oftentimes our felt needs, the things that we feel, our fear and anxiety and our struggle, and the, the emotions that are right there in front of us feel like the most important things. And what it does is it skews our perspective where we miss the deeper things that are underneath it. And so we make this mistake And it happens over and over because of the feel of of how close it feels. But then I want you to think about the culture we live in. We're bombarded all the time with messages that tell us that the physical is all there is. That this is the world we live in. And this is what matters most. And this is what's most important. And that if you're going to be someone or you're going to make a name for yourself, you need to have lots of money and things and physical things. And we're bombarded constantly in our culture with that idea. And that's the sinfulness of man. Uh, Romans chapter one, Paul talks about professing to be wise, they became fools and they worship the creation over the creator. Right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're focusing on the felt needs over our deepest needs. That we are made to be in a relationship with God and to love God first and then love other people. And then things are way down the list. But what happens is in our sinfulness, we reverse that. And we worship the creation over the creator. And so we do that all the time. And our world just tells us, yes. It's because the world is groaning under the weight of sin. It's been subjected to futility. So that's where we, the way we think. It's the way we talk. Now, there's a whole continuum of how overt we are in the way we do that. But we see it everywhere. You see it in the way people kind of order their life. The idea of like, you only live once. This is all we get. So amass the most toys, have the most fun, do all those kind of things. That's saying that this is all there is. And you get that constantly as a message. It's easy to focus on the felt needs over the deepest needs. And we hear that all the time over and over and over again. But here's the thing I want you to see. It's not unique to us. It was happening in Jesus' day. And so you know this story, right? He sits down. They go, "Where? how are we going to feed these people? 15,000 people. Well, this kid over here has got some loaves and some fish. And Jesus starts to feed them from that. Miraculously, he feeds 15,000 people. And it says right in the middle there, I think it's in verse 11, and they ate as much as they wanted. They ate plentiful. He continued to provide and he did it miraculously and he fed all these people. And it comes to the end of him feeding all these people. And it says verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. This is the Messiah. This is him. Look at this. He just fed us all. This is amazing. But then the very next thing, look at what it says, verse fifteen. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They see that he can feed them, they see the miracles he's doing, they see the things that 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 they're perceiving about Jesus, and they're saying, "This is the Messiah. We've got to make him king. This will fix all our problems." Let's let him lead the revolution and we'll overthrow Rome and he'll be our king and we'll get lower taxes. And he can feed us. This is amazing. And so they're looking at Jesus in this way of like, look at what he can do for us. Jesus is the means to the end of not having to worry about food. He's the means to the end of overthrowing the bad government. He's the means of all these things. And I'm confident in saying that's the case because as they come and find Jesus the next day, He calls them on it. That's what He says to them, right? The next day, they come and they find Jesus. And in verse 25, it says, they found Him on the other side of the sea and they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he says, you're here because I gave you a free meal. You got fed and now you're like, great, let's go find that guy. And he says, that's why you're here. And so they're using him as a means to an end. And Jesus is not going to be used as the means to an end. And he's going to do this over and over. And he's going to go, no, that's not how this works. It's not what I'm calling you to. And he's going to say that right here with them before we move to what he does say to them and what the answer is to this, I want you to just consider this for a moment, that we do this all the time and we do this even in the church. That we use Jesus as the means to an end rather than seeing him as the thing that we need. We continue to focus on the surface and our felt needs and we try to fit Jesus into a little box that's going to fix those things for us and we never look to him. And there's a lot of ways that we do this. I just said, some of us, it's easy to be anxious over money problems. Right? It's easy to be anxious when you go to the grocery store or you fill up your gas tank and you're seeing all those things. And so we go, oh yes, yeah, that's a felt need. And so as the church, and I say the church in general, we go, oh, well, we can, we can help with that. We can help you with that anxiety and that fear that you feel. And so we'll offer a budgeting class. Financial freedom. And you'll come and we'll show you how to make a budget and balance your checkbook and do all these things, and that'll fix the problem. Now, by the way, I'm saying that half-jokingly, a little bit sarcastically. There's nothing wrong with doing that. We've actually done that here. There's nothing wrong with having a budget. We should, as a church, be helping each other with those things. If you're like, man, I don't know how to make a budget, and I'm all out of whack on my spending, and I'm wasting it. Great, let's sit down together and walk through that. We're called to do that as a family of faith. We're a family in the church. We are called to do that. Nothing wrong with that. But if we neglect the deeper need that's underneath that, that's leading to us doing all these things, using money as an idol, trying to control the world by how much money we have in our bank account, trying to ease our anxiety only in those ways, we're only focusing on the felt need and not the deeper need. And so what happens, though, a lot of times is we do that. And we stop right there. And people are like, great. I love my church. I go to church and they help me get my money in order. But at the same time, your heart's still a mess. And what you've done is you've just taken your money and your budgeting and putting those things in case and you've made an idol out of them. It's a wonderful book on this. You want to think deeper about that. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's like diagnosing the idols of your heart. The ways in which you take your felt need and then you address it with certain things and then you make that your idol. I remember reading that book years ago and he was talking about the way people spend money and they use their money to get their position and stuff and these things will make me happy and these things will, will give me status. And he says their idol is money. And I remember reading the book and nodding along and being like, that's right. People do do that. And then I turned the page, and he said, and the same is true if you're really frugal. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa." (laughs) slow down. (laughs) And he said, because when you have to save money, and you're really careful with it, and you think in those ways, money is still your idol because you're trying to control the world by how much money you have in your bank account. And I went, oh. That's what I do. I do that a lot. I try to control things in the way. And so what he did is he kind of diagnoses your heart and he kind of shows you the areas in which you're doing that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm doing that. And, and what we do is we then pray and ask God that he would help us with our budget and those things so that the money would fix the issue is what we're really doing. And we're using God as a means to an end. But what Keller says so clearly in that book that I love the way he brings it out, he says, money can't save you from tragedy, can't give you the control of the world. It can't insulate you from things, bad things happening in your life. It can only give you that illusion. Only God is the one that can do that. They go, oh yeah, that's right. But we do that all the time. And so we take it and we wrap it in kind of some religious language and we'll get together And we'll pray about how to use our money, but we're still really worshiping the money. And it's so easy for us to fall into that. I'll tell you another way we do it. We take Jesus' teachings and what he tells us. We were just talking about this this morning in the equipping class. And we take Jesus' teachings and the good things he says. And we go, I'll add those to my life and my life will be better. And what we do is we kind of operate in a moralism. Jesus is my guru that teaches me the way in which I should live and the things that I do. And so I'll use God to help me be a better person. And I want you to really think about that. You might go, well, what's wrong with that? You take what God says and you're seeking to obey it and you're following it. And those things are better. But here's the problem of our heart. We can do that and then use God, use Jesus and his teachings and what he's shown us as the means for me to save me. I don't need you as my savior. I just need you to tell me some things to do because I'm pretty good already and then I'll add those things to my life and then I'll try my best and I'll be good. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not who Jesus is. He doesn't say, come to me all you who are heavy laden and I'll teach you how to carry this. He says, come to me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will take it. I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. And it's so subtle, but we do that. We use him as a means for me to be saving me rather than laying it down and trusting him. The same is true. I'll give you one other one. And it's maybe even a little more subtle. And so please hear what I'm saying. Follow with me. We love Jesus. We put our faith in him so that we can go to heaven. You go, well, yeah, that's part of it, right? Like he saves us and he saves us to this glorious hope in this future and you go, yes, that's true. Amen. Thank God that he's done for us what we can never do for ourselves. But I've talked to a lot of people and they go, I can't wait till we get to heaven. And I go, tell me about that. And they go, I'm going to get to see my mom again. Okay. I get to see my aunt Sally. And I'm going to get to do this and I'm going to get to do that. And they go through all these things. I go, what about Jesus? There's nothing wrong with thinking about being reunited with loved ones and those things. But if that's your whole conception, is I'm going to go to heaven and everything will be good and I'll get to see these people, then I'm using Jesus to save me to this hope that I can be reunited with my family. I'm using Jesus as this other means. When you breathe your last breath or when Jesus returns and you stand before Him, you're not going to be looking around going, who else is here? You're going to go, there's the King. The Creator God of the universe. And He's right there. And you're going to know everything that He's done for you. And you're going to be overwhelmed with His glory and His goodness. It's not that He gives us something else that will complete us. He's the thing that completes us. And so he's going to say over and over, don't use me in that way. I'm not the means to something else. I'm the ends. I'll give you one other one. And the way in which we try to do that, and then we'll look at his answer. We use Jesus to validate our politics so that we can try to control the world. And that's exactly what they were doing here. Let's go make Jesus king. And he can fix everything for us. Again, I'm reading from counterfeit gods. Listen to what Keller says. He says, people respond to political trends in such an extreme way today. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that were once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. Instead of trusting what Jesus tells us, that we love others in the ways that he's loved us. We boldly proclaim the gospel. We love people and we welcome them in and we continue to walk with them. We trust that he's going to do that work. We transfer our hope to a politician or a political party or a political ideology. And we start to make it all about those things, which is exactly what they were doing as they come to Jesus here. And they're seeking to do that with him. And so what we're doing is we're putting our hope in God's kingdom and the fullness of it coming through a way in which it's never going to come. Now, please hear me. I'm not playing both sides here, but having a full picture of the Bible is very nuanced. You should pray for your political leaders. You should vote and you should be involved and you should speak up for the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your ultimate hope is things are going to be fixed by a politician, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to happen. It's only going to come through the good news of what Jesus has done for us and nothing else. And I'm heartbroken when I think about it because I think right now in America, the church is destroying their witness by believing that lie. Instead of holding fast to who Jesus is, we're exchanging it for a lie that will never do what we hope it's going to do. And Jesus says here, don't do that. So what is the answer? Those are just some of the ways that we focus on the felt need and seek to use Jesus as a means to an end. So what is the answer? What does he say here? Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, right? There felt need. You were hungry, and I took care of it, and you all ate your fill, and you're pretty pumped about that. But then he says in verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in me, that you put your trust in me. And what Jesus is saying is don't come to me and use me for the means to an end, but you come to me and you transfer your trust to me and you rest in me. And who I am and what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to tell you, he's going to go on and we're going to spend a few weeks in what we call the bread of life discourse. And he's going to unfold that. And you know what's going to happen? Spoiler, if you've not read John 6, you get to the end of the chapter and a whole bunch of people leave. Well, that didn't work for me. I was wanting you to do these things for me. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm out. And that's what happens at the end of the chapter. But he's calling them to continue to trust in him, him alone, not what he can give us, but the fact that he is the thing that we need. And we all need to be reminded of that over and over. So I want you to go back and just think about what happens in the feeding of the 5,000 here. I love what he says and what he does here, the way he's discipling. If you go back to verse 5. Lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? He presents Philip, one of his disciples, with kind of an unsolvable problem. Hey, Philip, how are we going to get enough food to feed these 15,000 people? Right? Tim and a few disciples, how are we going to do this? But look at what the next thing says. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. I love that. Jesus asks Philip knowing he's presenting him with an unsolvable problem. And he's going to show him that's what it looks like. And then he says to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. Well, what does he do? He says, bring me those loaves and those fishes. And he starts to give them to disciples. Right? Take this and go. And they're, they're going out and they're feeding the people. And every time they come back and forth and every time they go, they're recognizing like, I don't have near enough for 15,000 people. And so what can they do in that situation? They go, well, we need to get more money and we need to bake bread. All the felt need ways that we would aren't going to work. And the only way that it's going to work is if you put your trust completely in Jesus and what he's doing. And so they do. And it says, everyone ate their fill. Every one of them had their needs met. Every one of them experienced that Jesus is the one that is in control of this situation. And he's calling us not to focus on the felt need, but to focus on him. That he's our deepest need. And if you trust him, our deepest need, and who he is, and what he does for you, all the other things will be taken care of. Again, Jesus says that over and over again. You trust me, you seek my kingdom, you follow me in these things and all the other stuff will be fine. And that's exactly what happens here. And they come back and they come back again and they do it over and over and suddenly there's plenty of food. And they get to the end and nobody can understand exactly how that happens. But what he's calling us to is, we continue to trust him, we rely on him in all things. When things press in on us and we go, I don't know how this works. And I don't know what this is going to look like. Now, please hear me. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your felt needs. He does. He teaches us to pray. Pray for our daily bread. He teaches us to come with him with all needs. To bring them before him and to trust him. it. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. But he wants to do more than just that. He wants to meet you at your deepest need. The area of your heart that struggles with belief, that struggles with trusting him. And he's stretching us and he's pulling us in that so that we would see that he alone is the thing that can satisfy us. Which is going to be the whole point of what he does in John 6. He's the bread of life. He's the one that you come to. He's the one that meets you in it. And he's going to show us that over and over and over again. And so that's our call. To turn to him, not to use him to fix our immediate circumstances, but to trust him to sustain us through it. And he will. And he'll remind you that you're more loved than you ever could imagine by what he's done for you. And he'll teach you to rest in his goodness and what he's called you to. That it's only by what he does for you, by grace, through faith, that we ever will be made whole. And it's all about him and nothing else. So would you pray with me, God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you meet us in the midst of our need. But that you love us so much that you don't just stay on the surface, but you go so much deeper than that. Would you help us to see clearly that that is true? That we desperately need you? That the deepest reaches of our heart, that our identity, that our purpose that what you have made us for is to rest in you, to see you as the thing that meets all of our needs. We thank you that you care about all the things that we're dealing with, that we're feeling, that we're struggling with. We thank you that you are there to sustain us through it. I pray for each one here that is struggling with those things very clearly right in front of them right now and how easy it is to have those felt needs overwhelm us. Would you show us that you are at work in the deepest reaches of our heart, that we would trust you in all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.